Welcome to IAQ Radio, the voice of the indoor air quality industry. Yes, the rules have changed. have changed. Good day wherever you're listening from and welcome to Indoor Air Quality Radio, IAQ Radio for Friday, February 3rd, 2012. This week, episode 234 comes to you from Studio C in beautiful McKees Rocks, Pennsylvania. My name is Radio Joe Hughes. Here with me in the studio is Val Bender, our engineer. Good morning. And joining us from Mexico by phone is the Z-Man. Once we get back up, we can unmute him. Let's see where we're at there. Let's unmute the Z-Man say hello. Good morning, Cliff. Hey. Welcome to... Hey, good afternoon, Joe. Good to have you. That's right, afternoon. All right. Thanks for the correction. All right. Uh, Roxy V's got us back up and running here. Val Bender, of course, also joining us by the phone will be our technical director, Dr. Dietrich Wow. Today's segments include the IAQ Radio trivia question. We've got an interview with Mr. Steve Caulfield out of the uh, Turner Building Science Group up in Maine. We'll do our halftime, of course, and then we'll go back to the interview and finish, as always, with our roundup and with Dr. Wow. First, before we get started, let's thank our marquee sponsors. Net Claims Now, providing insurance billing services for the restoration industry. For fire, water, mold, and reconstruction billing, learn more about them at www.netclaimsnow.com. Indoor Environment Connections, the newspaper for the IAQ industry. Subscriptions and advertising information are available at ieconnections.com. John Don Products, where restoration and abatement contractors shop. Visit them at www.johndon.com. Clean Facts and Cleaning and Maintenance Management Magazine, your source for cleaning and maintenance news. Visit them at clean, C-L-E-A-N-F-A-X.com and cmmonline.com. Please be sure to thank our sponsors for their support of IEQ Radio when you inquire about their services and products. Okay, folks, to listen live, just follow the link on your show invitation that says go to the show, or, of course, you can go to iaqradio.com and follow the link there that says go to show. And you can stream past shows directly from our website or download the show by going to the IAQ Radio uh, website and follow the link that says go to the show. You right-click on the download button and save it to your favorite MP3 player. You can also, of course, download the shows from iTunes. Don't forget, we have ABIH, IICRC, and ACAC continuing education credits. Just email me and request a quiz. Uh, fortunately, the end-of-month uh, rush is over, Val. Thank you. It was a rough, rough, rough month this month. Uh, but And last but not least, please visit 
the IAQ Training Institute website for the most current dates for the training you trust at iaqtraining.com. Don't forget we've got the uh, indoor environmentalist course coming up at the end of March in Greenville, Tennessee, or Greenville, South Carolina. And, of course, we have our annual summer camp at the end of August at Indian Lake. Let's take it over to the Z-Man for today's IAQ Radio trivia question. Thanks, Joe. win a cool prize by out-competing fellow IAQ Radio listeners and being the first person to correctly answer the IAQ Radio trivia question each week. Submitting your answer is easy. Email it to cslotnick at cs.com, or if you're listening to the show live via your computer, text in your answer. Congratulations. To Andy Krasowski for yet another answer. Andy's with Comcast Metal Products in Mars, PA. He was the first listener to identify Niam Gyal Wangdi, also known as Tensing Norgay, as the Napoli Sherpa, who, along with New Zealander Sir Edmund Percival Hillary, became the first climbers confirmed as having reached the summit of Mount Everest in 1953. The IEQ Radio Trivia Question for Friday, February 3rd, 2012, has been sponsored by Triska, the Tri-State Restorers and Specialty Cleaners Association, who have been serving the needs of and advocating for their members for over 30 years. Triska is your link to industry training, certification, standards, and events. Now for this week's trivia question. What is the term for the mass rate of water vapor flow through one square foot of a material or construction of one grain per hour induced by a vapor pressure gradient between two surfaces of one inch of mercury or in units that equal that flow? Back to you, Joe. Thank you, Cliff. Today's guest is Steve Caulfield, a professional engineer and certified industrial hygienist. Also widely known and respected building science consultant and senior vice president with Turner Building Science and Design. Steve is skilled in the design and evaluation of HVAC systems and their relationship to complex indoor air quality problems. He has provided HVAC design and commissioning services for healthcare, educational, commercial, and numerous other facilities and has conducted numerous indoor air quality evaluations for both new construction and existing buildings. Turner Building Science and Design is a professional team of engineers. The collective diagnostic and design experience of their staff includes the indoor air evaluation of over 20 million square feet of commercial, industrial, institutional, and educational space. Uh, Steve and the principal, Bill Turner, are both widely read contributors to industry publications like Indoor Environment Connections, and we are pleased to have him join us today as our guest. We've got some intro music for Steve.
I like that one, Cliff. Nice pick. All right, Steve, do we have you on the line? Yes. Hi, Joe. Thanks for having me. Welcome. Thanks for joining us. Uh, I I love that that gospel thing. I don't know what it is, but it's got me jumping around in the chair soul. here. A little soul. All right. Well, hey, Steve, how long have you been now with uh, Turner Building Science and Design? Yeah, well, it's been uh, 15 years. It's the longest I've stayed in one place. <laughs> 15 years now. And where were you prior yeah. to that? Uh, well, I, uh, I'll give you a kind of a short history. I started out uh, doing, um, well, I got my mechanical engineering degree, and then I started out doing industrial hygiene work in Massachusetts. And uh, left with my wife, we moved to Florida for five years and uh, continued in industrial hygiene, but at an engineering company, got enough engineering experience to take the PE and moved uh, up to Maine back uh, 15 years ago. And where did, where did you go to school again? I went to the University of Hartford in Connecticut. Hartford, Connecticut. All right. I knew I saw it somewhere. I was looking at my notes here, and I didn't see where it was. And now, so you had done some work in Florida as well, so you've kind of uh, mixed between the hot, humid climate and now the cold climate. Does Turner go around the country quite a bit, or do you pretty much stay up in the Northeast? Well, we we have done work um, all over the country. I personally have done some work in uh, Kansas and North Carolina and Delaware working for the Turner Group, but most of our work is in the six New England states. Okay, we, because I, we want to talk a lot today about building science issues, and I just wasn't sure because we hadn't been able to really touch base too much prior to the show. You're a busy man. Wanted to make sure we could go into some different climate issues here. Um, but before we do, you also volunteer at in some industry uh, positions, and I'm, I'm curious, what, what is your position now? Are you still working with the main indoor air quality? Is it the Indoor Air Quality Council? Yes, it is. Actually, I'm the president of the Maine Indoor Air Quality Council, um, which I like to say is mostly a ceremonial post um, because a lot of the work is done by our executive director. Um, but um, I have been on the board of the Maine Indoor Air Quality Council for uh, since its inception in 1998. So it's been a long relationship. And really, that's that's most of what I have time for, certainly now that I'm uh, president of the organization, because there is a lot of work that goes into that. Did you say 1998 or 88? Oh, 98. 98. Okay. Yeah. So you're looking at 14 years now. That particular group's been around. They are a respected group. They, they do a conference, I guess, every year. And as I understand it, the conference will be coming up here shortly. Can you tell us a little bit about the conference, when it is, where it is, and um, maybe give us a little overview of some of the presentations? Sure. Um, actually, right now, I'm at the lunch break of a, a seminar that the Air Quality Council up here in Maine is putting on, on uh, deep energy retrofits for residential um, properties. But uh, coming up next month, uh, March 20th and 21st, we're having our annual conference. And the uh, first day, March 20th, is going to be a, um, a uh, seminar on diagnosing and fixing indoor air quality problems. We're going to have David Baird, uh, from Massachusetts and Bud Offerman, who's from a left coast somewhere. You know, we don't know past the, the Mississippi what those folks are doing, but we'll get good good representation from both sides of the country 
time. That's a full-day seminar. And then um, on the 21st, the actual conference, we have a keynote speaker, um, Dr. Eileen Story from, uh, well, I guess she's with, geez, I've known Eileen Story for a long time, so i got to get this right. She, well, I don't have it here. Uh, <laughs> I believe she's with the CDC now. Um, and she'll be doing a, a, a talk about the Institute of Medicine report on um, on the effects of climate change and how that's going to affect the indoor environment. And then following that, we have a number of workshops and presentations by uh, folks from all over the Northeast and here in Maine um, on diverse uh, issues, um, anything doing with uh, weatherization, indoor air quality, uh, IAQ testing, building and systems design, energy efficiency, um, all, a whole host of, of items. We have a number of breakout sessions that last all day. And sounds like a great conference, and um, we look forward to, uh, I don't know if I'll make it this year, but uh, I'd love to make it down the road at some point in time. Anyway, um, we, you know, Dr. Wow and myself and, and Cliff, we've all been doing training in the uh, indoor environmental quality disaster restoration world for many years now. And the IAQ Training Institute is, is a company that Cliff and I have, and we're redesigning our indoor environmentalist uh, training program. It's the Indoor Air Quality Association uh, approved program. We got the approval to go ahead and redesign this course and make some changes I've wanted to see for a long time. One of the biggest changes is we're going to add a lot on building science issues. And um, we got some feedback there. How about, uh, okay, maybe it's from your cell phone there, Steve. I don't know if you can... Are you close to any um, electrical equipment there? No, I'm not. Okay. Yeah, we got a little background noise. We'll see. You know what? Try Cliff's. Uh, try muting Cliff for a moment. Okay. Anyway. Uh, let's see if that helps. Okay. So far, so good. Now, I, I'm thinking about dividing the building science section and actually the whole course into three levels, an awareness level, an intermediate level, and an advanced level. And prior to the show, I had asked you to, you know, kind of give me your feedback on what subjects should go into those different levels. And, you know, one of the things that you've, you came back with was that on the awareness level, they need to understand the forms of moisture. So you have liquid water, ice, water, vapor, or humidity. Can you talk a little bit about why that's so important for them to understand on the awareness level? Well, because I, I think on an awareness level, so many people are dealing with, uh, you know, if that's the, the, the level of course that they're taking, they're dealing with things that they're seeing out in the field. And they're not necessarily the ones who are doing diagnostics and trying to find a source of anything. But they're the ones who are seeing you know, stains on the ceiling or, or mold growing on the wall. And to get an understanding, basically, with, with how, you know, the, the, some of the biggest misconceptions can be the difference between, you know, water that's coming in from outside and water that's just condensing from inside. So understanding that water moves in, in different ways, and it can move through the building as vapor, but it can also leak in, uh, from roof leaks or pipe leaks and things like that. It's just a basic concept that I think people need to understand. 
And you also mentioned that, and, and you kind of went into it a little bit here, the, the concepts of pressures as driving forces moving air through buildings. Can you elaborate on that a little bit? Sure. The, the problems that people face in um, <clears throat> dealing with indoor air quality issues in a building don't necessarily always originate within the space where the, the effects are. So understanding that, that buildings, certainly commercial buildings, institutional buildings, are, are large, complex um, systems where air moves in ways that, well, A, some ways we know and intend, but a lot of times the air is moving in ways that we don't intend. Um, through holes in the building and pressure differences and things like that. So just getting those basic concepts to someone who's taking a course at the awareness level, I think, is important. All right. I wanted, we brought Cliff back on. And, Cliff, I don't think it was your phone with the background, but we'll, we'll take care of that in editing. Um, Cliff, I wanted to know, do you have anything you'd like to add with respect to that level, the awareness level, or anything we've, we've talked about so far? No, Joe. I think we can, you know, kind of move on to intermediate if you want. Okay, great, great. Well, let's go to the intermediate level, and that, at that level, you know, we uh, again corresponded, and you said that those people need to have a better understanding of moisture damage causes such as wind-driven rain, condensation, and leaks, um, and then additional understanding of air pressure, including temperature-driven stack effect, etc. Maybe we could just stop and talk a little bit about. Uh, wind-driven rain, condensation, and leaks, and, and understanding the, the nature of those issues. Can you comment on that a little bit more? Yeah, well, when you get a wind-driven rain, um, a lot of things can happen around the exterior of the building that don't happen under other conditions. You've got the combination of, um, of lots of water and a big pressure difference, and that can overcome some... Uh, flashing issues that may not um, you may not be aware of under normal circumstances, but under a you know up here we get nor'easters, down south they get hurricanes. Um, you know when those high wind events happen, um, they can cause leaks in ways that don't normally happen. So understanding whether whether you have an issue with a particular Exposure of the building or a particular type of storm is different than having a systemic problem where your flashing is installed improperly and you're getting continual moisture into a wall, for instance. Okay. And then you go into um, more information on things like temperature-driven stack effect and uh, mechanical system effect. I know mechanical system is one of your big areas. Can you tell us a little bit more about how what you think people need to understand about mechanical systems, at least at the intermediate level? Yeah, well, certainly understanding what they are supposed to do. So, for instance, um, places where you're generating contaminants, and that could be anywhere from a janitor's closet or a bathroom to a welding shop, need to be um, maintained at a lower pressure than adjacent spaces so that you don't leak those contaminants out into the, into the air. But further, you need to understand that you can have many microcosms in a building um, 
we, you know, we've done work in very complex buildings where they have multiple systems that are trying to maintain different pressures. So, for instance, like a vocational school where they may have instructional space next to uh, lab space, and the lab space could be anything from auto technology to uh, nail salon. Um, and those things, you don't necessarily want the instructional space to be affected by the lab space in that case. Okay. Uh, you know what, Steve? I, I hate to, I'm wondering if you could you call back in. We're getting a lot of feedback on the phone. I'm thinking maybe you got a bad connection there. And if you just call that number back in, I'll keep things rolling here for a moment with uh, Cliff. And that might clear up some of the background noise we're getting. What do you think, Val? Yeah. But can we give that a try, Steve? Sure. Okay, great. Thank you. All right, Cliff, yep. let's bring you on for a moment. Z-Man. Okay, Joe. We're talking, you know, yeah. awareness level and intermediate level. And, you know, a lot of the guys that you've done training with in the past, especially the disaster restoration crowd, you know, they're contractors. They do understand um a lot about the building itself, but I'm wondering, you know, what are your thoughts with respect to at the awareness level, at least what do these guys need to, you know, what, what do we need to, what kind of information do we need to get these guys to help them kind of communicate better with the Steve Caulfields of the world, for instance? Well, I, I think the one thing what I'd like to do, Joe, is answer it more on the intermediate level, because I think that he brought up really an outstanding point. Uh, one of the things that happens is that restoration contractors sometimes work in different parts of the country. You know, they're kind of like gypsies. They kind of follow where the work is. And you may have someone who's, uh, you know, from the Midwest and not necessarily familiar with nor'easters and the effects of them and not necessarily familiar with uh, hurricanes. And, you know, they'll go down into an area like North Carolina or Florida, and they're not familiar with the effects of uh, this combination of wind-driven rain and pressure overcoming flashing and overcoming, uh, you know, other, other building uh, issues and causing, you know, you get these abnormal leaks in abnormal places, and I think that's something really, really important. Uh, you know, moisture in the building envelope that these people would not see on a normal, uh, you know, not see in, in their normal work pattern. It's one of those things where it's kind of out of sight, out of mind. And I think that that was just a really, really important point. And I think you know, there's been a need, um, you know, to, to utilize uh, meters that are capable of, you know, have non-destructive readings, and they're probably going to use infrared cameras and other types of technologies in order to diagnose these problems that might not be necessary back at home. Okay. And, Steve, I think we have you back, and I just wanted to kind of fill you in while you were gone. Cliff talked a little bit about the fact that you pointed out that, you know, different areas of the country have different issues. We asked him specifically about restoration contractors, and he said that was a great point for them because they do travel around the country. Now, another point I'd like to bring up with respect to people traveling around the country, I think many of our listeners are, are familiar with the fact that we have either cold environments or mixed humid environments or hot humid environments or hot dry environments. But um, one of the other things I'd like to mention is the difference between the, 
the foundation or the the base of the building. A lot of times in the north here, we'll get basements in the um, middle area of the country, in the North Carolina, South Carolina. We'll get a lot more crawl space uh, type construction. And then in the hot, humid climates, you're going to get slab construction and um, oftentimes in the hot, dry climates as well. Steve, what other regional differences would you like to point out for people when they are trying to deal with these um, projects where they're not necessarily in their own area? Yeah, well, one of the obvious big ones is is the fact that uh, in some climates, the driving force for moisture is from the outside in, and in others, the driving force is from the inside out and makes a big difference on where you're going to see that moisture in the building envelope and also how you deal with it. Where is your first moisture control surface, if you will? You know, by the way, the, the sound is so much better. Val and I just breathed a big sigh of relief. Thanks for calling back in, Steve. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I'm closer to an exterior wall, so hopefully that helps. <laughs> great, great. Now, you also mentioned um, the wind forces on the exterior of a building. And you, you mentioned that a few times, and it sounds like that's an issue that, um, you know, you run into quite a bit. Can you elaborate a little bit on on what type of problems you've seen, for instance, maybe give an example, because of the wind pressure on the side of a building? Well, it can, it can cause different types of problems. I mean, the first off, when we were talking about wind-driven rain, I mean, it, it can push water uphill, so... All of a sudden, there's something where water isn't following gravity. It's being pushed by, you know, uh, air pressure um, to go against gravity. But, you know, one of the big things that we run into up here in the, you know, great frozen north is that people are burning a lot of fuel for heat. And they don't necessarily understand um, what happens when their exhaust from this fuel source goes outside the building and what effects the wind has on maybe re-entraining that exhaust back into the building. So how the, how the wind causes airflow to curl around buildings and cause eddies and things like that, um, sometimes that's a, a big issue as well. And that seems like an issue that would be something that someone who had a more advanced understanding would be able to diagnose. And how would you diagnose something like that? Well, I mean, the simplest way, I mean, if you want to if you want to show somebody what's happening, um, a lot of times what we'll do is just inject smoke. Um, if if a system isn't running at a, at a certain time, we'll inject smoke. And we've done this with, um, uh, say, plumbing vent systems as well. Uh, fill it full of theatrical smoke. The smoke's coming out of the plumbing vent, and all of a sudden you can see how the wind takes it right into the air intake. And, you know... Instantly, even even the most uh, uh, inexperienced person dealing with indoor air quality problems can see that you know the smoke comes out of the plumbing vent and goes into the air intake. Aha! I get it. But if you're just trying to to show them um, diagrammatically that you know this could happen, it's not as powerful a tool. Um, you know, more advanced uses might be to use some kind of tracer gas. You might use carbon dioxide or sulfur hexafluoride to do something like that. But whenever possible, to convince a client, it's better to use something they can see. Put out the smoke and mirrors, huh? <laughs> yeah, well, literally. <laughs> <laughs> 
Well, listen, we've got a, a text question here, Steve. I think it ties in nicely uh, into air quality. It's the smell that counts. Often a big moisture issue is missed. How does the structure dry to the inside or to the outside? I think that's a good building science issue with respect to, you know, people who are learning about building science issues, trying to evaluate these problems. How do you determine whether the building's drying to the inside or to the outside? And, and does that change during the course of the year? Oh, it'll certainly change. Um, you know, up here in Maine, we're known for having cold winters, and right now it's very dry outside, and so buildings are trying to dry to the outside. But more and more, we're getting buildings that are um, air-conditioned in the summer um, where the humidity is on the outside. I mean, remember, we have conditions similar to Orlando, Florida here for a period of the summer. It may not occur all, all summer, but we can have several weeks of high dew points where there's the moisture drive is definitely from the outside to the inside, and that gets even further compounded when you cool and dry the inside. So it becomes, you know, your issue may be happening when it's cold and you're getting condensation from, from the moisture in the building moving outwards, but you could just as easily have problems when moisture is moving from the outside in. So this, this tends to be a very challenging climate. I know when I moved here from Florida, people said, well, I can't have any air quality problems in Maine. What are you going to do up there? Because all the, all the mold grows down here, right? Yeah, right. <laughs> well, you know, another... it, it turns out it's even, more, it's even more complex when you deal with both extremes. And can you talk a little bit about in the middle of the country, you know, in the not necessarily the middle of the country, but in the um, southeast, up in like North Carolina, South Carolina? Yeah. Well, I, I remember we were doing work at a school in North Carolina, and one of the things we were looking for or trying to prove was that uh, stack effect was bringing um, contaminants from the crawl space up into the occupied space. We happened to be there in the middle of summer when the school was out of session, and uh, <laughs> we were trying to use a tracer gas to prove this and found out that because they were air conditioning the space above, we were actually getting a reverse stack effect, if you will. The air was coming in the top of the building and dropping down because of the cool temperature inside and coming out of the crawl space out to the exterior of the building. Um, so airflow in those space in those that part of the country, um, just strictly airflow, can, can vary from um, summer to winter based on if you're cooling the building now, things are, are coming down towards you, and in the winter, things are coming up as the stack effect works. You know, the, the buoyancy of the uh, warm air is driving things uh, up through a building. Cliff, anything you'd like to add before we go to halftime? No, Joe, I think you're, uh, I think you're doing just fine. Great. Now, Steve, before we do go to halftime, you, you kind of anticipated a question. I don't know if you realized it or not. We get a lot of questions about, and, and I see this on some of the chat rooms, mold in attics. And is it really a concern for people? Well, you know, you got a little mold in your attic, or a lot of mold in your attic, let's say. And, um, you know, I remember Mike McGinnis was on the show not long ago, and Mike's always been big on the four Ps, you know, people, pollutant, pathway, pressure. You kind of answered my question, but I'd like you to go into a little more detail. When can the mold in the attic be a problem for uh, residential, let's say, properties? Well, certainly anytime you've got uh, an air handling system that, that 
you know, say you've got a return duct that passes through the attic or you've got the air handler itself in the attic, then you've got a definite, you know, pressure-induced pathway there where you're sucking um, air from the attic that's going to be distributed to the space. But as I said, I think what you're alluding to is what I talked about in North Carolina, where right. the airflow was actually going from the attic down. Um, then you have a pathway where that pollutant can get to people. And that's, uh, you know, that's, it, it, in, most, in most situations, you wouldn't think of that as, as normal airflow. But with given enough openings at the top and bottom of a building and the right pressure, uh, the right temperature difference, you can certainly drive cool air down through a building, and it's going to be made up from at the top when you're air conditioning. And is that more likely in the climates you talked about, the mixed humid, um, as opposed to the very cold climates? Well, <laughs> I don't think... I haven't done any work in a climate where it's cold all the time, and I guess that would be pretty far north. So, you know, it's it's not going to happen in a place where you're not actively conditioning the air and trying to fight that um, that normal stratification where it's going to where the uh, temperature is going to drive the air upwards. But any place, I'd say, any place you're you're doing mechanical cooling, you're effectively you know causing the the uh, conditions are right that the airflow could be moving downward in a building rather than up. So the potential is there. All right, Steve, we appreciate yep. your uh, candor and uh, we appreciate you joining us. We're going to stop, thank our sponsors, and then we'll be right back. Thanks to our association sponsors, the National Air Duct Cleaners Association, NADCA, is the leading authority for information on HVAC inspection, cleaning, and restoration. Visit NADCA at www.nadca.com. The Indoor Air Quality Association, IAQA, a nonprofit multidisciplinary organization dedicated to promoting the exchange of indoor environmental information through education and research. Visit them at www.iaqa.org. And thanks to our advertisers, Gray Wolf Sensing Solutions, who use advanced sensor software technology and embedded computers to provide superior environmental test instrumentation. Visit them at wolfsense.com. Legends Environmental Insurance Services, the experts in insurance for environmental consultants and contractors for over 20 years. Learn about them at legends-enviro.com. And, of course, our marquee sponsors. Net Claims Now, providing insurance billing services for the restoration industry for fire, water, mold, and reconstruction billing. Learn more about them at www.netclaimsnow.com Indoor Environment Connections, the newspaper for the IAQ industry. Subscriptions and advertising information are available at ieconnections.com 
John Don Products, where restoration and abatement contractors shop. Visit them at www.johndon.com. Clean Facts and Cleaning and Maintenance Management Magazine, your source for cleaning and maintenance news. Visit them at clean, C-L-E-A-N-F-A-X.com and cmmonline.com. Please be sure to thank our sponsors for their support of IEQ Radio when you inquire about their services and All right, we are back for the second half of today's show with Steve Caulfield, the professional engineer and certified industrial hygienist with Turner Building Science and Design, LLC. Uh, Steve, do we have you back? Yes. Great. Steve, while we were finishing up the first half, I had a comment come in from a listener. I'd like to just read it to you. Maybe you could comment. Uh, It says, thanks, Steve. We have found the Oak Ridge and Woofy WUFI year-long hydrothermal modeling to be a big help on mixed climate situations. Air infiltration, I guess, is the key. Any comment on that? Um, well, we have not used a lot of uh, a lot of Woofy modeling, um, and you know, it's a lot of times. I think. I think there was something in there about air infiltration and really a lot of times that's a bigger problem where, you know, you can model the, um, the steady state conditions or even the variable conditions on either side of what you're calling your perfect wall. Uh, but it rarely gets built that way. And what we've found is that a lot of times infiltration, um, either of cold, dry air or warm, moist air, is causing much more of an effect than the diffusion that's usually predicted by these models. I see. And that's, you know, I think that's an important point at the intermediate level that you will get a lot more moisture and other, I guess, contaminants carried along with air through uh, where you have actual gaps for air to penetrate as opposed to diffusion through the building materials. And, and, and I think that's an important thing at the intermediate level for people to understand. Now, let's move on to the advanced level and, and talk a little bit more about, you know, what your thoughts are with respect to what advanced level building science people are doing. And, and, and when, you, when you emailed back to me, you had under the advanced level, learning how to disassemble building components to determine moisture infiltration locations. I, I thought that was a fascinating one because, you know, my son's a big carpenter and builder and he loves that uh, type of, you know, that, that type of talk, I guess. So can you tell us a little bit more about what your thoughts are on that? Yeah, well, uh, sometimes the only way to figure out what's really happening is to do some kind of test where you can recreate um, a leakage situation. And um, a lot of times we've done this, you know, one of the one of the common things, I mean, if you, if you talk to Joe Stebrook, he'll tell you the perfect building has no doors or windows. So uh, because we're people, we like to get in and out of these buildings, and we like to look in and out, so we need to have these holes. And the problems happen where you connect the holes to the rest of the building. So the, a lot of times what we end up doing is, is window leakage testing um, because that's the place where you're leaking water. And so we'll put... Um, We'll induce a pressure across the window and then spray water on it and 
see where the leaks happen. But if you do that with your drywall in place and your insulation in place, you're never going to see where the water is coming in. So sometimes you need to take it all apart, either before or after the test, to see where the water is coming in. Now, you don't want to take apart too much ahead of time because you might skew the test. But um, a lot of times that's a good way to see where does the water actually leak in. So what do I need to do to stop that? And, you know, taking these things apart is not as easy as it sounds at times. I mean, you know, you've got some really uh, complex systems that were built, you know, and uh, you've got flashing in there, you've got uh, wiring in there, you've got all these different components that have, you know, been put together in a certain way, and then sometimes you get the foam sprayed in there, et cetera. So I think you bring up a great point, you know. How do you, do you typically do that work, or do you subcontract to someone like, a you know, a, a contractor or construction expert? Well, sometimes we'll do <laughs> we'll do the demolition, but we usually subcontract somebody to put it back together. Gotcha. Um, you, you know, sometimes it's 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 both that we're subcontracting, but um, you know, we we're we're not expert at at necessarily putting things together. We're expert at figuring out how they should be put together and what's gone wrong with putting them together in the first place. Uh, but we're not, you know, none of us is a, is a contractor, and so you probably wouldn't want to rely on our workmanship. <laughs> well, while we're on that issue, let me bring up an issue that, you know, with respect to these building envelopes and, and the complexity of them and, and tearing them apart. Uh, exterior insulated finish system, EFIS. Um, how do you handle that with respect to, you know, trying to investigate EFIS problems, EFIS leaks, EFS, whatever the terminology is. Can you give us a couple tips on that? Well, yeah, I mean, now now you're talking about usually taking things apart from the outside um, because the, the insulation is on the outside. Um, I, I don't know. I've seen several different problems with, with uh, you know, whatever you want to call them, EFIS systems, um, you know, depending on their vintage of... of um, construction you know now they're they're generally installed with uh, a little ventilation space behind them to allow water to drain out uh, in the old days if uh, if it was installed directly on a wall and you've got cracks in the in the exterior finish then you could have moisture problems right there but now we see a lot more problems with uh, with flashing like you would with any other cladding system um, if the flashing isn't done right then it's going to leak, just like uh, just like brick or some other siding. Now, I just want to quickly, I uh, want to get to Cliff in a moment here, but there was a, another follow-up on that air infiltration comment, just clarifying that their comment was that it's usually, air infiltration is usually several orders of magnitude greater than vapor drive, and that's that's a great point. Also, I wanted, that made me think of something else. While we're trying to redesign this program i'm looking for comments from any of the listeners out there you know what what aren't people learning in these courses when they go to try and learn more about indoor environmental consulting what aren't they learning where what are the shortcomings and you know how can we beef it up so please uh, my email is joe.hughes at iaqtraining.com it's on the website iaqradio.com we're looking for as much input as we can get and we always appreciate it cliff yeah, I was wondering whether or not, Steve, you know, during all the many buildings that you've looked at over the course of your career, whether you've found any 
you know, cost-effective, practical repair methods, you know, that will solve these problems, you know, where you have problems around flashing, uh, where you have problems around windows, where you have problems, you know, around doors, anything that, you know, can, can do this inexpensively. Well, Cliff, it, it depends on the problem, and I, you know, I hate to dodge it like that. But if I had the magic bullet, I, I don't think I'd be working anymore. I'd be selling that. But, um, you know, if if a problem, it, a lot of times, what's happening is not necessarily. Um, how do I want to say it? It's it's not necessarily a leak, but you could have an air infiltration problem that allows wind-driven rain to get in around a window, for instance, and in that case. Sealing the air leak without doing any additional flashing may stop the ability of the water to move through the system. Um, but there have been numerous cases where we've had to do, um, you know, the, the complete disassembly. Take the window out and reflash it, uh, flash the jams, the sill, and the head, keep all the water out, and uh, make sure it drains to the outside. Because a lot of construction, you know, frankly, <laughs> just was not built right. Um, it, either the flashing goes halfway through the wall, which allows, you know, water to drain past it. Uh, it was installed over um, the building paper, for instance, so that water dry, runs down behind the flashing rather than having something lap over the top of the flashing. Um, or it was just discontinuous. You know, they, they didn't overlap it. They butted it and uh, relied on some sealant at the butt joint to keep the water from going in. So, I mean, there's just too many numerous problems that I've seen to say that one solution solves it. Uh, but, you know, where where we can use a solution where it doesn't involve taking the, every <laughs> opening apart and re repairing it, certainly uh, we try to do that. Thank you. Let me let me think. See what you think about my simple solution for some problems, Steve. Don't add air conditioning to buildings. It it seems like, <laughs> I I run into this where I live. I live at a, a little area around the lake in the mountains of Pennsylvania, and their their building is fine. Their residence is fine, and then the minute they try and add air conditioning to it, they cause all kinds of they wreak havoc on these buildings. Do you run into that much? Oh yeah, I mean it, it changes it changes the conditions inside the building. But I mean, you know, you can't look at indoor air quality holistically and say that comfort isn't a you know at least a, a small leg on that. Um, so, you know, in in a lot of cases, we need to keep people comfortable. And certainly for the southern half of the country, we're going to need to deal with some air conditioning. But I think the bigger problem is buildings need to be designed so that they can accept air conditioning. Um, it, it, it becomes a bigger problem when you're adding air conditioning to an existing building that wasn't intended to have it. Um, then when you make, um, when you change those moisture flows and you change where condensing surfaces are, you can create problems condensing water out of the air. Yeah, that's the problem we have is, you know, it, it seems like it's getting warmer every year and you know you're seeing it in maine as well they add air conditioning to these existing residential properties typically and a lot of them have crawl spaces and they never had a problem before in their crawl space but now they've added air conditioning and voila we've got a problem in the crawl space it it 
if you do add these types of systems to your building, you've got to think of it holistically and, and recognize what kind of problems you could be creating when you do. So yeah, yeah, and I, I mean, if I can just go back to that building in North Carolina, the air that was coming out of the exterior vents on the crawl space had to be, you know, 68 degrees. So, I mean, when you when you add air conditioning to a building that's relatively leaky over a crawl space, you're effectively changing the conditions in that crawl space, and you may be creating condensing surfaces for when the, the you know, 95-degree humid air uh, hits that cold surface. It could be causing condensation, which could cause a problem in your crawl space that you never had before. Yeah. Now, let me go. You had a couple more advanced level suggestions here. One was uh, more information on things like uh, using infrared cameras, uh, moisture meters, uh, tracer gas, pressure measurements for air pressure. I wonder if you could comment on on infrared cameras for us. Are, are you using them frequently now, and how has that changed the way you do your work? Well, yes, we, we do use them more now. Um, certainly, since the prices come down, it's, it's easier for any, anybody to get an infrared camera. Um, the, you know, there are several issues with using them properly. And I guess one of the biggest things that, that uh, we've done in trying to solve problems of air leakage in buildings is, well, first of all, you need a temperature difference to use the infrared because it's looking at temperature. So you need a temperature difference between the inside of the building and the outside, if that's what you're looking at. But um, one of the other things that helps is to manipulate the pressure in the building. So maybe put a blower door in and, and pressurize the building so that air leaks out in places where you can see it. Then you see clear streaks on your infrared image that show you where the air is leaking out of buildings, and you can go to those areas to try and air seal them. Um, you know, from a weatherization perspective as well as from an air quality perspective where, you know, unintended airflows may be getting through your building. Could you comment on moisture meters and any advancements you've seen in moisture meter technology, if, if you have seen any, and, and maybe give listeners a tip for the issues that uh, are, you know, good or bad about uh, tips for how to use their moisture meter yeah, well, uh, and a lot of times what we'll do is use the infrared in conjunction with uh, moisture meters, particularly in, like, cold weather, because we'll get, if we're looking at a, uh, an inside of a building with an infrared camera, we may see a cold spot, and that could either be a lack of insulation, it could be a wet spot, or it could just be an air leak. So in that case, we would use a moisture meter to, to verify whether that area is actually moist. And we've used, you know numerous types of these. We've got contact meters, uh, um, uh, electronic type, um, you know, uh, what do I want to say, like magnetic um, meters or pin type meters that just measure conductance. Um, all of them have their pluses and minuses. Um, one of the things that we've been doing recently is looking a lot more closely at, at concrete moisture levels um, and uh, and realizing that, you know, the standard calcium silicate uh, um, uh, moisture test where you, you're testing the floor moisture content before you put down, say, floor tile, um, the way that test is con conducted may may miss some of the, the moisture in, in uh, floors. So we've, we've been more so looking at 
doing deep humidity tests uh, using moisture meters, so putting a probe down into the concrete and testing it that way, as well as using like some of the commercially available contact concrete moisture meters um, to verify what's going on. And, you know, having, having a knowledge of a number of different technologies helps you to understand what may be causing different readings uh, under different circumstances. I'm glad you bring up the concrete issue. You, may, you kind of read my mind on that. That's that's an important issue for, for our listeners. Before we go to our roundup, uh, I wanted to give you an opportunity, if you would, to, to give us an example of a current or past project where any of these things we talked about before or even something new was a problem and what, what your solution was. And then I'd like to go to the roundup and get Dr. Wow in here and, and Cliff. Okay. Well, uh and I've had a couple of projects with this general problem, and I'll state the general problem, is that we get called um, to look at a building because they think they have a moisture problem, so they think they have a mold problem. And the evidence of that is a lot of uh, historic pipe leaks and some wet ceiling tiles and maybe even the windows leak, um, you know, uh, occasionally during storms. And, you know, in a couple of these cases, we've found that, that actually that was a small part of what the entire indoor air quality issue was in the building. Um, and one of these cases, um, it turned out that they had issues with a boiler plant that had initially been on an exterior wall that was moved to a, the interior of the building. They built an addition. Um, we're supplying air combustion and supplying too much so they were pressurizing the boiler room and sending soot throughout the building okay so that was one contaminant in addition they had a heat pump system where all the condensate drains were connected to each other um, and periodically during the year the some of the condensate drains would dry out and some of them were under positive pressure and some were under negative pressure and so we, we, again, injected some smoke into the condensate drain system and saw how all these things were interconnected and smoke was coming out all over the building. And we realized, aha, if we've got stuff growing in the condensate drain system and it's, you know, air is moving through that condensate drain system and going into these air handling systems, then that, all that stuff that's growing in there is being distributed throughout the building. So even though they had a biological problem, it wasn't necessarily related to the leaks and the water intrusion that they could see. You know, you, you bring, it brings me up. I, I, I got to get one more in before we go to round up here, Steve. <laughs> you, okay. you started out with your certified industrial hygienist certification, as I understand it, if I recall correctly. And then you got your PE, which of those two, and I know this might be tough to do, which of those two backgrounds helps you more with solving indoor air quality problems, or are they both equally important? Well, they're both equally important for two different reasons. You know, it, it depends on what, what the nature of the problem is. Um, and so, you know, I can understand from a mechanical engineering standpoint why, the, you know, the boiler pressure makes a difference and, the, you know, how the heat pump system works in the condensate drains and how that can be under positive and negative pressure. But I, you know, a lot of times it's, it's the health effects that drive us to the solution as well. 
and we try to reconcile what people are telling us and what their doctors are telling them as far as, as what's going on and what, you know, maybe giving us clues to what we should be looking for. So, I mean, I guess some of it comes from that industrial hygiene background as well. And, you know, that's another major component of, of the course. And while we're talking about that, what, I, what I'd like to do is we go to our roundup here. It's, it's, we got about five minutes left, and I don't know. Do you have to run right out of here at 1 o'clock, Steve? No. Okay. Maybe, if you don't mind, if we maybe go over by five minutes. We love having you. Okay. All right, great. Let's let's go to the roundup. We'll go around one time. We'll let my I'll have you, Val, uh, Cliff, and then Dieter ask a question. Or with Dieter a comment, I'm sure. Move him on, hit him up, hit him up, move him on, move him on, hit him up, raw high. Cut him out, ride him in, ride him in, let him out, cut him out, ride him in, raw. Let's, you know, Cliff, I wanted to make sure if you'd like to go first, let's get you on. If not, I'll have Val. Val has one. Uh, it, actually, I, I have two. Uh, you know, one is a comment that, you know, kudos to Steve for using smoke. I, I think that, um, you know, people can't deny what they can see. So um, I just wanted to get that in. But I'd like to know your opinion of just green buildings in general, Steve. Okay, well, widely generally, I would say <laughs> that that green building is a good idea. But, um, you know, some of the implementation has not been exactly what we expected. So, you know, it's, uh, it's kind of like anything that's called green. Uh, there are varying degrees of green, um, you know, that almost anybody can call anything green. But I'm all for anything that uses less energy and provides better air quality. That's for sure. But um, there are a lot of buildings I've seen out there that claim to be green construction that are just, you know, not, not necessarily the best use of energy um, or, or the best air quality is being provided. And, you know, I, I'm biased on, in, that, in that sense, but, you know, I'd much rather see those two hit uh, in my version of a green building. Thanks. Fair enough. Val? Uh, yeah, Steve, what do you think is an emerging issue in building science or IEQ that our listeners should be aware of? Well, I guess, you know, I'd have to say, I don't know if it's an emerging issue, but um, over the years, you know, we, we touched on this before, the, the whole idea of infiltration and, and um, air movement through buildings. And I think people have been harping on for a long time, um, you know, from the energy efficiency perspective, they've been harping on our value, you know, and and not necessarily understanding how, you know, how little effect that has if you're actually bypassing the insulation with a lot of air movement. So I think, you know, that, that as I see things going more towards energy saving and weatherization, that, that I'd like to see more... Um, well, I, I do see more people understanding the fact that, that air movement, you know, around and behind all of that insulation uh, may be a cause for both their energy use, excess energy use over what they predicted, as well as 
you know, potential air quality problems. Yeah, that's a great, great point, Steve. I'm, I'm glad you brought that up. I'm glad Val asked the question because I, you know, I, I, when the big energy push came out here two, three years ago, I went and took a couple courses myself. And that was the one thing that really hit me as well, you know, that I, I know the building science guys have been pushing air infiltration for years, but I think the tide really started to turn when the, the energy groups started to push the same issue, maybe for different reasons, but ultimately the bottom line is it's a big help that uh, people were learning to fix those problems first, I guess. Next is our good friend, Dr. Dietrich Wild. Dieter, I know you've got a couple comments on this one. Do Where's we... my music? <laughs> Wait a minute. Where's his music? <laughs> oh, there we go. <laughs> my fault, Dieter. I jumped the gun. Okay. Now, now I woke up. That's all right. <laughs> I, I didn't listen to any. <laughs> no, I think I think we touched on a bunch of very very important, interesting, and not well understood uh, uh, problems. <laughs> the, the the one thing, and I have to throw that one in with a tongue in cheek, isn't it wonderful with our modern technology that the phones don't work nicely anymore? <laughs> <laughs> I have an old black one with what is that called? Is that a rotary, rotary dial? dial? Yes, sir. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah, the rotary dial. That damn thing fell down a hundred times and it works perfectly. <laughs> and a wire to the wall. Huh? Other thing, the other thing that really bothers me, and Steve pointed that out perfectly. Why the hell don't we learn how to do flashing on windows? Is that a science where you have to have three PhDs before you do it? <laughs> I hear you there. It's not easy. Well, well, I mean, if you want, if you want the short answer, I'm, I've looked at a, at a bunch of old buildings, and, you know, old, maybe 100 years old. And when we can actually find the blueprints for those drawings, you know, an entire seven-story building was built using seven drawings, and they never had a flashing problem. So I think it's all down to, you know, it's the lost art of workmanship. Um, you know, it, they didn't do 27 details of the flashing for those buildings. They just did something simple, and the guys who were building it knew how to do it. And, I mean, if you look at a building that's been around for several hundred years, obviously it probably didn't have a lot of flashing issues or it wouldn't have lasted that long. Yeah. I walked in many of those in Europe. And I want to say something, but I'm not going to say it. <laughs> There's something to do about the education of craftsmen in the United States. Oh, it's a shame, dude. I mean, my son's worked for a builder for years, and he knows how to flash windows, but... You know they yeah. don't, they don't let him do it that way, or they didn't. He he's working with me now, but yeah, they didn't let him, and and he tried like heck to get them to change their ways, but they just you know there's this production building, you've got to get it out, you've got to make the money on it, your your margins are very tight, and uh, it just gets skipped unfortunately. Yeah, the other thing is, and we talked about it. Uh, Joe mentioned it, Steve mentioned it. Very nice that Ephus that. Yeah, all Holiday Inns are built with that or, or, or surrounded by that today. And they don't know how the hell to do it. 
it's another one like with the flashing. Uh, Joe knows Danny. Danny and I were in Germany, and we looked around how they use EFIS. Now, when they use EFIS on the outside of a building, be it commercial or residential, they have at least two feet of brick from the level up, you know, from the from the from the dirt level, from, yep, from whatever ground. you call yeah, that, yeah, yeah, street level up. Yep. So you don't, you can't run into it with your lawnmower. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it makes a hell of a lot of sense. And I said, look at this, and they have drainage. We. A couple of people probably watched me and <laughs> Danny and said, what the hell are these dummies doing over there <laughs> looking at this thing? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. And what the hell do they get out of it? Well, we, get, we learned a lot from it. Uh, what else did I see uh, that I wrote down? Peter, I got a well, quick, quick comment from the ventilation of attics and crawl spaces. And I have a theory, which I said, and Joe knows that, at least five years ago. Today we run our cars with super-duper computers, and it is miraculous to me that they don't break down more often, like my computer did the other day. Um, can't we put some a temperature, humidity, and, if we like, a dew-point meter in there? And have ventilation when we want it and turn it off when we don't need it. In fact, when it works backwards against us. And I think for a couple of bucks we can do that in a crawl space and, um, and in an attic. And the other thing that I have to throw in when Joe mentioned, please, anybody who listens, comment. We like comments from listeners. If we screw up, we want to know about it. If we do something well, we want to know about it. Dieter, I got one here. Um, and I think it's a good point. You actually brought it, started to bring it up. You said, old buildings store so much water, it's not fair to compare. I think that's a great comment, these these big stone buildings. And he also, this is good for you, too. Remember, the Europeans invented EFs, and we screwed it up. So I think that's an interesting comment, too. <laughs> <laughs> Somebody make quotas on that one. <laughs> are you two? Are you two communicating with behind? I didn't know. Okay. Anything else there? Yeah. Uh, well, yeah. I I I I just want to remind everybody that we have at the end of uh, August, we have our three or four or five courses which we are teaching in Pennsylvania, yep. near Somerset, and uh, for it's five days, right? Correct. It's Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday. Yep. Yes. And you guys can look that one up on the on the uh, uh, web page over here. And and what do we have on Saturday? Joe, tell everybody. The golf outing, Dieter, of course. The golf outing, of course. You're driving the beer on truck, a, right? That costs, what, 35 bucks or something <laughs> like that yeah. for 18 holes? That's a great deal. We've got to get Steve that is down. A great deal. Steve, do you play any but golf? Anyway, yeah, the crawl spaces, the EFIS, uh, Germany, comments from listen. Oh, I forgot. Congratulations, Andy. <laughs> <laughs> I worked with Andy two weeks ago, and he's a great guy, and he beat us again. And I think I know the answer 
for today's uh, uh, trivia question. Yep. yep. Uh, did you get a good answer so far? No, nah, I don't have one Not yet. Sure. I don't see one yet. You have one? No, no. Not uh, yet. You, you can answer and we'll send you a prize. <laughs> well, I need another hat. No, it has right. something to do with ASTM to measure perm, but that is all right. Uh, all right. Now, perm was what you're looking teach, for. That'll work. We teach the details at the end of August <laughs> in Somerset, Pennsylvania. <laughs> Peter, thanks so, as Peter, always. Thank you very much. I enjoyed, I enjoyed your presentation and your comments and uh, the hits below the belt and above the belt of where we <laughs> did right and where we did wrong. I can talk tons about ventilation issues and so on, which is one of my favorite subjects. But uh, maybe we see you in August uh, in uh, on, on Indian Lake. Okay, we'll see about that. Love to get okay, you there, Steve. Steve. Hey, terrific. I liked it. And like I always uh, uh, say, amazingly, I always learn something when I listen to this show. Every week, Dieter. Well, Steve, before we go, is there anything that you'd like to add? Anything we missed? Any final comment? No, I think we touched on just about everything. I think I, I, I did realize that when they talked about infiltration, you know, I think the other thing that goes hand in hand with that is when we're tightening up these buildings to stop this infiltration that maybe is causing us some problems, you know, we may get to a point and in many buildings where we make it so tight that now we have to add some kind of controlled ventilation. So I don't think that should be missed either, you know, in the in the whole weatherization and sealing industry to make sure that that uh, some form of ventilation is added and you know it could be energy recovery or something so you don't pay a big penalty to it uh when you when you do that but um you know that that becomes an issue when you get a building tight enough it was a build it tight and ventilate it right as uh the our canadian friends it. like to say <laughs> All right. Well, Steve, th thank you so much. We really appreciate having you on. And one more time for listeners, when's that uh, Maine Indoor Air Quality Council conference? Sometime in March again? That's uh, March 20th and 21st. March 2021. Are you speaking there, too? Or? Uh, yes, I'll certainly be uh, moderating the uh, opening uh, session. And I believe uh, Turner Building Science and Design is putting on a, uh, a case study at some point during the conference. Great, great. Well, good luck with that, and uh, thanks for joining us again. We really appreciate you coming on. I hope we'll see you again down the road. I, it was great getting a chance to meet you at Indoor Air. Yep, same here. Thanks a lot. All right, thank you, Steve Caulfield. A great uh, Turner Building Science and Design. I want to really appreciate having him join us this week on IAQ Radio. I want to thank the Z-Man for calling in from Mexico. Hey, how's the weather in Mexico? My pleasure, Joe. All right, great. Always, always My a pleasure. pleasure. And uh, by the way, Shane brought the uh, bagels, so you know, he, he held up <laughs> the tradition. <laughs> I, I told him to. Yeah, he did a great job. Did a great job. I want to thank uh, Roxy V, Val Bender, for helping on the, at the controls. Yep, good thank, to be here. Thanks, Val. Of course, our technical director, Dr. Dietrich Wild. Dieter, thanks for joining us again. Most importantly, you are a growing group of loyal listeners. I didn't see Dottie today. Where's Dottie, baby? Oh, uh, well. Anyway, please come back and join us next week. We've got Richie Shoemaker. He's got some new 
uh, research and, and some new results out. So we're going to talk to him a little bit about some of his uh, genomics and some of the uh, some of the uh, ex- some of the new results he's got out coming next week on IAQ Radio. So please come back and join us for the next episode of IAQ Radio. This has been another IAQ Radio production.